0: Hey, I'd like to welcome all of you who are joining us online today for our worship service. As many of you are well aware, we are in the middle of a series through the book of Revelation. And I just want to, here at the beginning of our time together, I just want to encourage you to be reading through this incredible book of the Bible. I would imagine that uh, for many of us watching this today, Revelation is perhaps the least familiar book in the Bible to you, In fact, if your Bible still has some of those really crisp, clean, brand new pages of them, I guarantee you that they are probably found in the book of Revelation. Because let's be honest, Revelation isn't the easiest thing to read. It can be somewhat confusing. Not everybody agrees on every single detail of the book of Revelation. And so it becomes one of those books of the Bible that's like, I don't know what to do with it. Shane Wood, who is a professor at Ozark Christian College and who I think is an absolute expert, who I'd consider to be an expert in a way, on the book of Revelation, he said that when it comes to this incredible book of the Bible, oftentimes Christians tend to do one of two things with it. Christians will either ignore the book of Revelation completely or they will abuse it. You see, because some choose to ignore it because there's parts of it, as we were saying, it's hard to understand. There's parts that we read and it's a little bit confusing and it leaves us sometimes saying, what does this have to do with me? This doesn't really apply to me, does it? And so we just ignore it. We pretend like that last book of the Bible isn't even there. And if we were being completely honest, many of us would say, you know, I don't read the book of Revelation. It doesn't affect my faith in Jesus at all. And so some just ignore it completely. But on the other hand, he says, some abuse the book of Revelation of Revelation. They see the book of Revelation as some kind of code that needs to be broken. They, they read the newspaper, they watch the news, and they see everything as tying back to the, Reve- to the book of Revelation somehow. They'll see some kind of world event happening and they'll try to make that fit into some kind of timeline of Revelation. Probably the most extreme abuse of the book of Revelation is when people use it to try to predict the second coming of Jesus, when that will happen exactly. And isn't that just one of the most absurd things that we could ever do with the book of Revelation? And do you know why that's an absurdity? It's because of what Jesus said himself. Do you remember what he said when he walked the earth? Matthew chapter 24, verse 36? He said, But for about the day or hour, nobody knows. When it comes to the return of Christ, even Jesus is saying, nobody knows that. He says, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. I'm just gonna tell you right now, if you ever come across somebody who says, hey, the return of Christ is gonna happen on this day and at this time, and they came to this conclusion because of this verse and whatever, you can dismiss it, because nobody knows. So both ignoring and abusing revelation are extremes, Neither one of them are good. So the question becomes, how are we gonna approach the book of Revelation? I can tell you this. We're gonna approach it for what it is. It is the word of God, just like it says in the very first verse of the book. It says this, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him. It is God's words. They are from him. And we are gonna treat these words as such. We're also gonna approach the book of Revelation As a blessing, just like it says in the third verse. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart with what is written in it. We read Revelation with the understanding that it was written to Christians who were suffering great persecution. And they would have understood Revelation as this revealing picture of the victorious Jesus. And not some book predicting the end of the world. We approach Revelation knowing the big picture in mind. And what is that big picture? The big picture is we win. We absolutely win as followers of Jesus. And this would have been tremendous news to first century Christians. And it is still tremendous news to us today. So please, let me encourage you. Be reading the book of Revelation. Try to come to this time that we have together read up uh, I encourage you to read a chapter or two ahead and come in here very familiar. It will be of great benefit to you as we study through this series. So with that being said, let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Revelation chapter two, then chapter three. That's where we're gonna be today. And if you are joining us for the very first time today, let me just quickly catch you up. Revelation was written by John. John was one of Jesus' original 12 disciples, and he wrote Revelation while he was in exile on the island of Patmos. He was there, Bible says, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, he was a follower of Christ, and he's being persecuted for his faith in Jesus. And so that persecution ships him out to this island, and that's where he is when he writes this Revelation. We learn in the very first chapter that while he is on this island, he has a vision of the risen Christ, and it is an amazing vision. He sees Jesus standing among seven golden lampstands. John describes Jesus from head to toe, and what he describes is someone who is not timid. He is not weak. It's not some of these these images of Jesus we're sometimes familiar with. No, no, no. John's description of Jesus is of a mighty and powerful and victorious Christ standing among those seven lampstands. It is such an overwhelming presence of the risen Christ that John admits that he falls down on his face in front of Jesus in worship. He can't can't almost stand to be in Christ's presence. And so Jesus comes over and he puts his right hand on John and he's like, John, I got something for you to do. I need you to start writing. I need you to write down everything that you are seeing, everything that you are witnessing in this vision. And so that's what John does. John does. And then right at the very end of chapter 1, Jesus says to John, I'm going to help you understand what some of these things mean, these images that you're seeing. And he says that in this, with this very powerful impression of Jesus, he says, I am the one who's standing among these seven lampstands. Jesus is standing among these lampstands, which is the church. That each of these lampstands is the light for Christ. They are the witnesses for Jesus, and he is standing there with them. I mean, it's a great reminder to us today that Jesus is committed to the church. As you read the New Testament, Jesus is often described as a groom. Did you know that? Are you familiar enough with the New Testament to realize that? He's a groom. And the church is often described as what? As a bride or the bride of Christ. The Bible talks about how the groom and the bride, Jesus, and the church are meant to be together. In Ephesians chapter five, the apostle Paul was instructing the church about the family. And in doing so, he reveals this wonderful truth about Jesus and the church, Jesus and his bride. Let me read it to you. He says in Ephesians chapter five, verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Now that's interesting. He's like, hey, dads, fathers, husbands, you got to treat your wives in the same way that Jesus treated the church how did Jesus treat his bride says he gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless boy there's a lot of things to unpack there but just simply put Jesus died for his bride do you read that do you hear that Jesus died for his bride. Jesus died for the church. Jesus died for us. And why did he do this? Well, we know from other scriptures he did this because Jesus has this tremendous love for us. And that love for us caused him to go to the cross to make preparations so that we could be this radiant, without stain, without wrinkle, without blemish, his holy and blameless bride to him. All that simply to say is that Jesus died for our sins so that we could be with him forever because the groom and the bride are meant to come together. We are committed to him, waiting for his return. So the imagery here in the beginning of Revelation is Jesus is standing with the church. It is the groom with his bride. And where is all this going? Well, if you were to fast forward to the very end of the book of Revelation, what does John see? Revelation chapter 19, verse seven. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Jesus died for his bride That's in the Gospels. We read about that. Jesus is coming back to marry his bride. That is the wedding feast of the Lamb. That's the end of Revelation. That is the reward together with Christ forever. So in between Jesus dying on the cross for his bride and the return of Christ for his bride followed by the wedding feast of the Lamb, in between those two things, how shall we behave. How should the church behave? What does the church need to do right now in between the cross and the wedding feast of the Lamb to be ready? You know, in essence, that is what the next two chapters of Revelation is all about. You see, in Revelation, we learn that Jesus Christ, he wins, and we win. The Lord is coming back for his bride, and until then, until that moment, Jesus needs to say some things to his bride. He needs to say some things to the church before he returns. Because what is very clear in Revelation chapter two and chapter three is that if things don't change with his bride, many of them will actually miss the wedding feast of the lamb. So John writes these seven letters to these seven churches as dictated by Jesus. These seven churches to receive these letters, they're named back in, in chapter one. They were addressed to the Christian congregations of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. In fact, if you look at the lower part of your screen here, I've got a map of where these seven churches are. If you have a Bible that has maps in the back of that Bible, you're gonna find a map somewhere back there that's very similar to the one that I am showing you here. I'll start by showing you. You see in the water, there is the little island of Patmos. Now that is where John is at when he writes this Revelation. And if you just follow the red line, then you're going to find yourself at Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. Those are all the seven churches of Revelation. Were there more than seven churches? Well, of course there were more than seven churches. We read the book of Acts and we see all the missionary journeys that Paul went on and others and they planted churches all over this area. Of course there were more than just seven churches. So why did Jesus... Select these seven churches to receive letters. Well, as we've already discussed in in a previous message, the revelation was written in a genre known as apocalyptic literature. And in apocalyptic literature, numbers and symbols and things, they mean more than what they appear on face value. So the number seven in apocalyptic literature means complete, or it means whole. We understand this to mean that, yes, there were seven churches that received these letters, but the contents of those letters, even though they were specific to those communities, actually contain messages that were for all Christians of all time, back then, even through to today. But you know, there are some other reasons to consider why these seven churches were connected, You know, it could just be also that these seven churches were the most connected to John's leadership. You know, church tradition tells us that John, as an older man, he was living in Ephesus. And then he got exiled uh, about 60 miles away out in the ocean towards, or the sea, out to Patmos. These would be the churches that John was most familiar to. So it makes sense that these were the seven churches that got these letters. It could also have something to do with the fact that it was most likely these seven communities that were uh, under the most persecution at that time. Domitian, the emperor of, of the areas I was telling you earlier last week, he was the one responsible for all this persecution. And it seems like there's an argument can be made that these seven churches were at the center of that persecution. We also know that all seven of these cities that are mentioned where these churches are Um, They had Roman courts of law in those cities. So what could happen there very easily is that uh, Christians could be dragged into these courts and found guilty of the capital crime of being a Christian. And they could be sentenced to death right there in any of those cities. But you know, it wasn't just the physical persecution that these seven churches were facing. Others were in even greater danger than physical persecution. They were in danger of a cultural seduction as you read these seven letters to these seven churches it becomes very clear that some of them had begun to compromise their convictions compromise their very faith at least three of these cities on this map they had temples that were dedicated specifically to emperor worship all of them were connected through the famous roman road system so every one of these cities provided people Of all backgrounds, opportunities to explore pretty much any pleasure that you wanted. There was many things that were available to Christians and it dragged some of them away. You know, we may never know all the details behind why these specific churches got letters and others didn't, but the message still rings true to all churches, all Christians through all time. And as you read them, I think you're gonna discover that the message to these churches hits really close to home. In In many ways, their issues are the same as what the church struggles with today. Now, we're not gonna take time today to read all seven letters. I trust that you will do that on your own. And as you do, I think you're gonna notice that all of them share similarities with one another. At the same time, each one of these letters could stand uniquely all on its own. What you're gonna, what you're gonna discover as you read these seven letters that all of them contain um, three basic elements. All of them, or most of them, really confirm, contain some kind of affirmation. There, there's a word of affirmation. There's a word of praise to these churches. Most of them get that affirmation. You know, there's also a word of correction to a number of these churches. You know, there is some judgment passed on these churches. Like here, this is what I love about you, but this is what I can't stand about you. And then all of them contain a promise. Here's what your reward will be if you endure and stay faithful. So keep that in mind as you read these seven letters. There's some level of affirmation, there is uh, some correction that comes, and there is a promise given to all of them. So what I wanna do is I wanna look at this first church, the church in Ephesus, just briefly here today together. If you look at Revelation chapter two, verse one, this is what it says. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Let there be no mistake. This letter is from Jesus himself. And all seven letters identify Jesus in some way, just like this. In Ephesus, what is he? He is the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Obviously, that is Jesus. He'll identify himself in similar fashion in all seven letters. And then he goes into the affirmation. Hey, this is what I wanna praise you for. Look at verse two. Jesus said to the Christians in Ephesus, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, and you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Boy, I tell you, I read that and I'm like, man, that is, some, that is a solid word of affirmation. Who would not want that said about them? Jesus is saying, i look at you guys and I see that you are hard workers. You are working hard for me. I see that you have this incredible amount of perseverance. You are standing strong on, on all the stuff that's happening around you. Jesus says, I see you, you don't tolerate wickedness. No, 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 you don't tolerate wicked people or what they bring. No, you don't tolerate that at all. And he says, I see you're being persecuted and you're doing a good job standing up under it. What must it have been like to receive a letter like this from Jesus himself? I think back to that time and I think about what it would have been like to be a part of one of these churches. I think it is at least probable, I think it's likely that the Christians of this time might have been been tempted to think, has the Lord forgotten about us? I mean, let's remember, this is about 60 years after the cross and resurrection. I mean, we're on to the second generation of Christians here. And maybe there was this temptation. Has the Lord forgotten about us? They were experiencing some real difficulties and they, I, I'm sure, were wondering, what does the future hold for us? And then you get this letter from Jesus. It's this tangible reminder that the Lord has not forgotten you, that he is paying attention to you, that he has a plan for you, that nothing escapes his notice. What an incredible shot in the arm that had to have been for the Christians living in Ephesus. Affirmation is a powerful thing. You know, when I was a freshman in high school, Uh, My family was living in Gresham, Oregon, which was a suburb just outside of Portland, Oregon. I attended the Gresham High School, and I and about 75 other freshman boys that year tried out for the basketball team. We were all trying to earn one of 12 spots on the freshman team. Our school at the time, actually, they had four teams. Uh, They had the varsity team, and rarely would there ever be a freshman ever suit up with the varsity. So that really wasn't even on the radar. They also had a junior varsity team, and that was pretty much made up of sophomores. There might be a freshman or two that played JV, but that was kind of for the sophomores and a few juniors, very few freshmen. Then there was the freshman team. Now that was the one I was going for because that was the team that that was just freshman only. So I and about 75 other boys were trying to get a spot on that team. And then there was another team. This other team was known as Junior Varsity 2. We called it JV2. JV2 was not one of the teams people were aiming to be on, if I'm just being honest. I mean, nobody aspired to be on that team. I would say that JV2 was better than getting cut and not playing at all. But out of the four teams, without a doubt, Junior Varsity 2 was the lowest of them all. For one, the JV2 team, well, they got all the hand-me-down uniforms and they got the afterthought equipment. I mean, that's just how it was. Um, they had to play in what we called the upper gym. I mean, this upper gym, it was old, it was dingy. It, the lighting wasn't very good. There were no bleachers for fans, but let's be honest, other than parents, nobody came to watch the JV2 team play basketball. Well, during the tryouts, I was very happy with my performance. I, uh, when it was all over, uh, I thought I had done enough to make the freshman squad. I thought I was gonna get one of those 12 spots. You know, all of my basketball friends you know, often do. You sit around, you wonder, what team are you gonna get on? Did you make it? And all of us agreed. I thought that I should have been on that team, but I was shocked. No, I was horrified. And I was embarrassed to discover the very next day that I did not make the freshman team. I made the dreaded junior varsity two squad. And I remember, I'm just being honest with you, I remember at the time I felt like such a loser. I mean that's the team for all the not quite good enough boys to play on. And I felt like all my hoop dreams had just gone up in smoke when I saw my name on the JV2 roster and I did not wanna play and I'd even considered quitting. That was not until two days later when the head coach of the varsity basketball team, he came and hunted me down between class one time in the halls. He, he caught me in the halls. He said, Joe, I wanna talk to you. I've been looking for you. He said, hey, I wanna tell you why you were put on the junior varsity two team. First of all, you need to know this. You are plenty good to play on the freshman team. And boy, let me tell you, when he said that to me, I was like this huge relief came over me because I was doubting He said, I want you to know, all the coaches agree, you're plenty good enough to play on the freshman team. But we all feel like you're gonna get a lot more playing time this year if we put you on the JV2 team. And if you get a lot more playing experience there on JV2, you're gonna have the opportunity to grow in ways that you could never grow on the freshman team. And one day, we see you being a member of the varsity team down the road. Boy, I'll tell you, that one minute long affirmative conversation with the head coach changed my entire outlook on basketball that year and probably changed my outlook on a whole lot of other things beyond basketball. I went from feeling dejected, cast aside, nobody cares and wanting to give up to energize and more in love with basketball than I had ever been before. There was nobody more pumped up that year to play on the junior varsity basketball team than me. I showed up every day to practice, fired up, ready to go. Why? It was because of an affirmative word that all of this going on wasn't for nothing. It was an affirmative word that said to me, hey, you weren't brushed aside, you're not an afterthought, you weren't forgotten, that I was a part of actually a much bigger plan. And you know, if that one minute conversation with a basketball coach could do that for me, what must it have been like to receive a letter from Jesus Christ himself affirming their hard work affirming their perseverance, that don't quit attitude, affirming that they don't put up with wickedness at all, affirming that they are doing right by standing up under all this, these, this persecution. Hopefully, it changed their entire outlook on God's master plan. Boy, affirmative word changes lives. Well, just so you'll appreciate my little trip down basketball memory lane, here's a picture of me from that JV2 team shooting a free throw um, that year in the upper gym that was dark and dingy with no bleachers. This picture was taken, oh, around 1990. And I think my uniform is from the late 70s or early 80s. It had to have been. Look at those short shorts, Man, am I glad some things have changed. I told you we got all the handy downs. And if you're wondering if I made that free throw, I have no idea, but I am pretty sure that I swished it. <laughs> anyway, hey, six out of these seven letters that went out to these churches, they, were, they had words of affirmation and praise with them, So let's look at them quickly. To the church of Smyrna, here was their affirmation. Revelation 2.9, Jesus said, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. What a powerful word of affirmation that is. I know you're down, but deep down, you're, you're rich. Here's to the church of Pergamum. Here's their affirmation. Revelation 2.13, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. And Jesus said, listen, you live in the headquarters of Satan himself. That you've stayed true. What a great word of affirmation. To the church of Thyatira, their, their affirmation came in Revelation 2.19. Jesus said, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. To the church of Sardis, here's their affirmation. Revelation 3, 4. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. There's a lot of problems in the church at Sardis, but there were a few, and Jesus says, I'm pointing them out. There's a few that have not gone down the road with everybody else that have stayed true. What a great word of affirmation. To the church of Philadelphia, here's their affirmative word. Revelation 3, 8. I know that you have little strength, Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Jesus saying, I know you've been beat down, but you've not denied me. What an incredible affirmative word. And then there's this church in Laodicea. And interesting, there is no affirmative word for the church in Laodicea. Things in Laodicea were bad, they received no praise at all. More on that in just a moment. So Jesus has these affirmative words for these churches and they were powerful moments. And if they were paying attention, if they were paying attention, it would absolutely reshape their Christian community. But Jesus doesn't have just words of affirmation. What else does he have? He has words of correction as well. Five out of the seven churches got a strong rebuke from Jesus. Even though he praised them, he rebuked them. let's go back to the church in Ephesus, the very first one in Revelation 2. And, you know, what were they praised for? Their hard work, their perseverance, they wouldn't tolerate wickedness, and they stayed true under persecution. That's what they were praised for. But then Jesus said this. Look at chapter two, verse four. Here is their word of correction. Yet I hold this against you. That had to have been like a big gulp moment. It's like, yeah, Jesus is praising us. Yet I got this against you. Oh, mm, what's coming? That's this moment. He says, you have forsaken the love you had at first. Wow, what a punch to the gut. Some translations say, you have forgotten your first love. And we know that first love is who? It's Jesus Christ. You've got all these good qualities but you forgot to love Jesus. Consider how far you have fallen, Jesus said. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. He's saying, I will remove your witness. That's what I'll do. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We don't know who the Nicolaitans were. Um, There's no record of them in scripture. It was something local there. Um, The Lord hated what they were about and so did the church and he praised them for it. So what was the problem that needed correcting there in Ephesus? They lost their passion, their first love. Though they were still faithful, their their desire for Christ had cooled down quite a bit. It's kind of like a marriage that had been dulled by years and years of routine. Same thing over and over and over. It just, they'd lost their zip. Their faith had lost their zip. That's a great way to say it. They, They were just working for the Lord, day in and day out without much passion or purpose. And I'm wondering if there's anybody watching this today that can relate to the Christians in Ephesus. You know, sometimes I wonder how closely the church today mirrors what these seven churches were struggling with. As I said, five out of the seven, they received correction Correction that the that the Ephesians got too. Here's the here's the correction to the church in Pergamum. You ready for their correction? Revelation two fourteen. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with a sword of my mouth. What was the problem there in Pergamum? What, what, What brought about this strong correction from Jesus? It was false teaching and sexual immorality that had crept in to the church. You see, the the Christians, especially in Pergamum, they were under enormous pressure to follow teachers and cultural rituals and idol worship that was uh, very heavy right there in their community. And you know what? We are under the exact same pressures today. False teaching, sexual immorality, it's all around us. They're no different than we are. He moves on to the church in Thyatira. Here was their correction. Revelation 2:20. Nevertheless I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and in the eating of food sacrificed to idols. That's what was going on inside the church. And Jesus says, "I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling." So I will cast her on the bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her of, of her ways. So what was the problem in Thyatira? They had a huge problem with sexual immorality. It had to do with this woman named Jezebel. Was that a, a callback to the Jezebel of old that, that, that turned many Israelites against the Lord? Or was this a specific person named Jezebel? Or a specific, a woman who was a Jezebel type woman in the church that was causing all kinds of problems? We're not really sure. But the problem was sexual immorality had crept into the church, You know, before this COVID-19, I was planning to preach a sermon series that you might recall, we advertised it, I was ready to go. But we were calling that sermon series The Elephant in the Room. Do, Do you remember that? I will come back to that series another time when it's appropriate. But did you know that that series was all about sexual purity in the church? And what the Bible teaches us about our bodies and how to honor God with them And how sexual immorality, how it can absolutely destroy your walk with the Lord and threaten your very salvation. It was a problem then, and sexual immorality is a real problem and danger for Christians today. To the church in Sardis, this was their correction, Revelation chapter three, verse one, Jesus said, I know your deeds, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead dead. Ouch. Man, is that a strong rebuke. You have a reputation for being fired up, but I know you're not. Wake up, Jesus says. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. In other words, they were on their deathbed spiritually. Wake up and strengthen what is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. What was the problem in Sardis? Spiritual hypocrisy was the problem. They had a reputation for being a spiritual life, but they were quite spiritually dead. In many respects, their faith was phony. Their faith was, was fake, and then we come to the last church, the church of Laodicea. Remember, this was the church that got no praise from the Lord, no affirmative word at all. Revelation 3.15 says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I mean, this is where Jesus famously said, said, I'm gonna spit you out of my mouth as you disgust me. That's what Jesus is saying. What was their problem in Laodicea? Materialism was their problem. They had grown lukewarm in their faith because of their dependency on money and the things that money could buy. They had really become Christians in name only. So of all the dangers that are threatening the church today, just look at the the things that were threatening the church back then. They were struggling with a lost passion, false teaching, sexual immorality, spiritual hypocrisy, and materialism. There is not a single danger from that list that doesn't endanger Christians today. There isn't a single danger from that list that doesn't destroy churches today today. And the solution to all of these problems are the same for us as they were for them. Did you catch what Jesus said to every single one of these churches? Jesus said to do what? He said to repent. That's right. The solution to these problems is to humble yourself before God and to repent. And Jesus is just pointing out, you've got a whole lot of repenting to do, but not all hope is lost. There is not a time where Jesus washes his hands clean of these churches, of his bride. No, 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 not all hope is lost. You know, in the last lecture, Randy Posh writes this. When you're screwing up and nobody says anything to you anymore, that means they've given up on you. Whew! that is strong and to the point, isn't it? He's like, hey, when you're screwing up, And nobody says anything to you about it anymore. Nobody's correcting you. Nobody is um, offering rebuke or nothing. He says, you know what that really means? It means they've given up on you. You know, these, these churches, these seven churches, they were screwing up in many areas. These letters, though, are a reminder that Jesus has not given up on any of them. No, no, no. He calls them to repentance, and he calls us to repentance, too, And do you know why that is? Because we are getting ready for the groom. That's why Jesus calls us to repentance. Because we are getting ourselves ready for the groom. We are preparing ourselves for the wedding feast of the lamb. These letters, they contain great affirmations, and these letters also contain quite startling corrections. But they also contain promises If you go back and look to the the church in Ephesus again, at the very beginning, chapter two, that church that had lost its its passion and and Jesus calls them to repentance, look at what he says, though, as a word of of, of promise. Revelation 2, seven, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now that is a tremendous promise. For those who stay faithful, those who repent and stay faithful to the Lord, those who do not forget their first love, specifically to those Christians in Ephesus and carried over to us. For those people, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, the good fruit, eternal life. As you read all the letters to these seven churches, all of them were given such promises. If they repent and they stay faithful till the end, they are going to receive an incredible reward. Friends, I want to leave you with this thought. In fact, everything that we've been reading so far and everything we're gonna read in Revelation, it is leading us somewhere. Ultimately, it is leading us to the wedding feast of the Lamb where we will be with Jesus forever. And I have a question for each and every one of you who is watching this today. What needs to change in your life to be ready for that feast? What in your life right now do you need to repent of? Because it is jeopardizing your seat at the table at the wedding feast of the lamb. For those of you watching this today and you've never believed in Jesus, you've never never turned your eyes toward heaven and if that's you right now, there's only one response that you need to make to be ready for the feast. And that is to humbly tell God you're sorry for all your sins, to repent of those sins and to believe on him, to believe and have faith that Jesus Christ loves you very much, that he went to the cross for you and that he is coming back to get you. He is the groom and you are the bride and he has a great wedding feast in the future prepared for you. So if you've never received Christ, that's what you need to do. Repent and believe. Be like the Christians at the very beginning when they cried out to Peter in Acts chapter two, what must we do? Be like that person. Repent and believe. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, but you would honestly admit I lost my passion Or maybe you would say, you know what, lately I've been chasing some very non-biblical things in my life. Or if you right now are watching this and you've fallen into some kind of sexual immorality in your life, and maybe that sexual immorality is so secret that if it ever became known, I'd be so embarrassed. Oh, I could never, if that's you. Or if there is any hypocrisy in your life. Or if you've been chasing money and possessions instead of your walk with the Lord. If that's you then there's really only one response for you as well. And like Jesus called the seven churches, he is calling you to repent. There is still time. Friends, remember this, don't ever forget it. Jesus said to his disciples and carries on to us today, when he ascended into heaven, he said, surely I will be with you to the very end of the age. The picture of Jesus standing among the lampstands is an image of the victorious Christ standing with his church. It means that nothing escapes his notice. He is standing with you and he is making an opportunity for us all to be together at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Jesus Christ went to the cross, he's coming back. We're living in the in-between, so how should we live today? How should the church be? What is the Lord calling you to do right now? Let me pray for you. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this word to these churches. Lord, may they not just be a word to them, but may they be a word to each and every one of us that, Lord, we will take to heart not only the affirmative praise, but the corrective words. And Lord, if any of that correction is represented in our lives right now, Lord, would we repent of you? I pray, God, that we would humble ourselves and tell you we're sorry and make a commitment that we're gonna change, that we will not flirt with losing our seat at the table of the wedding feast of the Lamb. So Lord, we just give you praise. We thank you, God, that you loved us so much that you sent your son to die on the cross so that we could be with you in the end, that we could receive this great reward. Lord, help us today to stay faithful until you return. Lord, help us to stay faithful every day the rest of our lives. Lord, help us recognize that which is not right, that we may repent and get right again with you. Lord, we look forward to that day when you'd come. May it come quickly, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.